This episode is brought to you by the Who Killed Icky Treasure Hunt, Morty App, Buzzshot, Cogs by Clockwork Dog, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm PG Law, alongside my co-host, David Spira. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. I love playing escape rooms, and one of the things I love even more is that post-game discussion where we get to analyze everything that happened, we can talk about all of our favorite puzzles, things that worked for us, things that didn't work for us. And it gets tough to talk about that on a podcast because you don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't played the game yet. And that's why we created the Spoilers Club. It's a Patreon-exclusive series, and we invite creators from all of our favorite escape rooms to come on and give us juicy behind-the-scenes stories in a director's cut-style commentary. I wanted a place where I could not only relive the memories of my favorite escape rooms, but we could also analyze and dissect all the aspects of their design and puzzles. It's especially interesting when they talk about puzzles or designs that failed and how they eventually overcame these challenges. In this episode, I've chosen some fun clips from our more recent Spoilers Club episodes to preview, including Lab Rat from Hatch Escapes, Edison Room from Palace Games, The Forgotten Cathedral from Escaparium, Ghost Patrol by Trivium Games, and Missing Season from Steal and Escape. I tried to choose clips that were interesting, yet didn't spoil too much about the game. Now, one thing to note is that some clips might have very slight spoilers, but nothing that wouldn't be immediately revealed the minute you step foot into the game. And we don't spoil major reveals or how puzzles work in these clips. And thank you once again to episode sponsor, Who Killed Icky? This treasure hunt has prizes totaling $50,000 and is designed by a member of the escape room and puzzle hunt community. We'll be back to tell you more about it later in the episode. In our first clip, we chat with Terry Pettigrew Rolap and Tommy Wallach from Hatch Escapes located in Los Angeles, California. Their game, Lab Rat, has been a fixture in the Los Angeles escape room scene for a very long time, and it's been consistently ranked in the Terpica Top 100 list year after year. And if you don't know, Terpica stands for the Top Escape Rooms Project Enthusiast Choice Awards. And for more information on Terpica, listen to our interview with founder Rich Bragg in Season 6, Episode 2. Tommy and Terry have been writing partners for a long time. They talk about coming up with a concept for Lab Rat and the struggle to tell great stories via the medium of escape rooms. I guess maybe the way in is to say this. Tommy and I gave ourselves an insane, almost like an assignment early on. Like, could we do a diegetic room (laughs) where Mm -hmm. the, the solving of the puzzles made sense within the story itself, you know? And so obviously like the easy cheat is that you're being tested in some way. Yep. We hit upon the idea of, of a laboratory and we thought it'd be really fun to kind of flip the roles. Tommy and I are both vegan adjacent and <laughs> <laughs> we have a, a certain political thing to say. It's true. Uh, but more than that, we were interested by the flipped roles. You know, what, what, what would it be like if humans were subjected to laboratory tests the same way that that rats are 
And that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. And that's, then that's the premise. <laughs> yeah. So diegesis was a big part of it, though we certainly didn't achieve it hundred percent. And then we also decided very early on that we wanted to make sure the room was funny. And the reason for that yeah. wasn't just because we like being funny, though, though we do. And, and in fact, <laughs> you hate it. We hate it. <laughs> no. And, and in fact, what's funny about it is our goal, our end goal is actually to figure out how not to have to be funny, to, to be honest. One of the things we realized early on, at least speaking for myself, my experience of escape rooms that attempt to take themselves seriously, which I would argue is certainly more than half and probably more like three quarters is it's never going to work. And it's not never. Okay, fair enough. It, it has to be at such a high level to succeed. And your audience is just not going to be as forgiving, you know, uh, because it's mm-hmm. so easy to go from drama to melodrama. And that's especially true in this, you know, this lived space where a set that is constantly being beat up and things, things are, are going to be broken and you've got, you know. Some dude has to come over the mic and say, don't pee over there, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and it's just that comedy gave us so much more forgiveness from an audience, we thought. Right. And for our first room, it gave us more leeway to, to make mistakes. Yeah. Makes sense. And so eventually after many drafts and when Tommy and I write, we go through many drafts, <laughs> but after many drafts, we had, you know, kind of settled on the main character who is a, uh, a doctoral student in human intelligence who is trying to get his dissertation done. And we are his fourth test group, test group D. (laughs) (laughs) The tiny little story that Labrat hangs on kind of stems forward from there. He's, he's under a lot of pressure to get this uh, work done, to get results for his doctoral thesis. Yeah. He seems like he's, he's under a lot of pressure. He seems like he might not be the nicest guy on a good day. Yeah. 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 And and, we're, and he's not really having a good day. He's, he does not do well with the rat ladies. Well, one of the things <laughs> that um, I think has been part of the, the struggle to tell decent stories in escape rooms, and, and to be clear, we are very realistic about the ways in which we succeeded and the ways in which we still very much failed with that room. But one of the things you pretty much have to do to tell a real story, it's, it's almost step one, is you have to have characters. And mm-hmm. the vast majority of rooms still don't. Because it's so hard, right? Your choices are you can try to make the players characters, but you can't hang a story on the people who just showed up. You can't do it. You can have actors. My experience of actors, and I, of course, haven't done Strange Bird, but there's a big difference when you have really serious actors who are playing the part over and over again like they're in a Broadway show, and that's very different. But the average escape room, of course, the game masters are effectively doubling as actors, and they're they're not paid what they're worth, lots of other problems, and the script probably isn't super great. And so they're not convincing and no one's on board. And so that's why we chose to hire a pretty professional actor and film him because you can't really get a really serious actor to do something like this 50 times a week. It's just not going to happen. Makes sense. I think you also did a good job of pinning the stakes to something that is achievable. You're not saving the world Mm-hmm. You're saving yourselves, which mm-hmm. I think is smaller stakes, I think, tend to help escape rooms. The characters that the players are come in with a level of ignorance that is reflected by their role in the space. Yeah. They're not supposed to know, which I think we talk about often the problem of being told 
there's a bomb that's going to go off and you're a special FBI team. And it's like, no, I, I decidedly yes, I am. am not. <laughs> I, I, I definitely am not that, but sure. Let's let yes. And yeah, it's a lot easier when you are cast as somebody who has also been mysteriously thrust into a world with no prior knowledge. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah to be a, to be a nobody in this space makes a lot of sense. And looking over all our projects, that's essentially what we've done. Yeah, it's actually amazing. We hadn't thought of that. Thank you. Great yeah. insight. Both of our other projects that are nearing completion, Mother Frankenstein, you're playing a game that was actually built for someone else to play. And part of the story is what's going on for that person who was supposed to play it first, and you're just following in their footsteps. Right. And in the latter, it's your 50-year career at a company, and you start it. First day on the job. First like, day at work. know nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think being cast as like laboratory rats also helps with your suspension of disbelief. This is something I thought about, David, when we were in Denver and we went to David Burns Theater of the Mind. Is this, a, well, I guess, a spoiler. it's like small spoiler. It's closed, I think. Oh, <laughs> well, in the beginning, what they do is they make you choose a name tag and it could be boys names, random names. And then you have to introduce yourself by that. I'd be like, hello, I'm Thomas. You know, and David would be like, hello, I'm Lisa. And so you introduce each other by these weird name tags so that I feel like when you go in and you see they have different actors playing David and the David in the photo is going to be different from the actor. But because they have you start off as introducing yourself as something and you've stepped into a different role, it's easier to accept that this actor will look also different than the memory and the story that we're stepping into. And so I feel like it's a good way to prime you for just suspending your disbelief. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Anyhow. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the setup of Lab Rat. So one of my favorite things about Spoilers Club is getting to hear about those tiny little details that the designers sneak into their games that we may not notice when we're frantically trying to solve puzzles. Here, Tommy and Terry talk about creating a hallucinogenic effect in Lab Rat. A few things happen, some that people might not notice. The first one is there's a lighting change and a, and a music change. All of the music for Lab Rat was custom made by a, a friend of ours. He's a, a jazz musician, well, part of the Pat well, Metheny group. Kind of. This was custom made. A lot of the music we actually, is actually found music, but from this same composer. It was, a, it was a, a cheap and fast way to get it done, and it really worked. Yeah. I mean, we got some killer tunes. He's been working a long time, so he has a lot of stuff in his slush folder, yeah. and we just kind of went through the slush folder. But this cue was custom built for us. Because it layers. So each time you solve a puzzle, a new layer is added to the soundtrack. It's very ambient. It's like laboratory sound effects. Yeah. I don't think I realized that. It's subtle. It's, it's subtle, quite subtle, but you would notice yeah. now. You would if yeah. you hear you hear. Oh yeah! And simultaneously, we're slowly making the lights more and more uh, psychedelic. Right. The effect we're trying to create is each time you solve a puzzle, a drug is dispensed. It's amazing. really a buttermint, delicious buttermint, <laughs> uh, which people are very nervous to eat, but they can. And the idea is, you are being drugged with hallucinogens. Fun thing, I have like a strong like I don't consume anything in in escape rooms rule. Except in this game, I was like, of of course I'm having this. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Good. So yeah, so by the end of it, you become fully high. And the music is now a a very dramatically different thing. I'm recorded with effects on my voice. I don't think anyone has ever listened to what I'm saying is the truth. But I'm. It's actually very funny. (laughs) I wish they would. I had a really good time. Edison Room from Palace Games in San Francisco, California is an escape room classic. 
There is a ton of tech packed into this game. And Palace Games founder, Chris Alden, joins us with a scoop on creating this tech, including the famous floor of this escape room. In this clip, he gives us the backstory of how he found his location at the tourist attraction, Palace of Fine Arts, and how historical events at that location led to the storyline for his escape rooms. An iconic classic. From the minute when I started playing escape rooms, all I heard was, have you done Edison Room? You gotta go up and do palace games. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind. So let's start with palace games. Where did this company come from? Because from my perspective, it emerged sort of out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I was hearing about this incredible company in San Francisco. They're in this historic building. And at the time, you had one or two games when I really first started hearing about you, Houdini and Roosevelt Rooms. And there was this sensation that was kind of coming. And for me, I always felt like it just came out of nowhere. So I'm curious what the backstory is. I happened to live across the street from the Palace of Fine Arts, and a friend of mine said, hey, if you looked at that, there's some space there, because it had been the home to this great museum called the Exploratorium, and the Exploratorium left in, in uh, about 2012, and it was basically empty. So I got introduced to the guy who the city had asked him to put some interesting stuff inside, and, and I convinced him that he didn't need these old closets. They had these closets that were like storage rooms that had potato chips from like a TEDx conference that had been there three years before. And <laughs> I said, can I just take over these closets and do this thing called an escape room? And they said, yeah, sure. What the heck? We don't need those closets. So that was 2015. And when I did the research as to what the building was for, we realized it had been this huge uh, aspect of this great World's Fair that had been there in 1915. And all these brilliant people were there. Harry Houdini and Thomas Edison and Teddy Roosevelt and all these innovators and you know famous people. So we decided that we wanted to kind of tap into that and pretend like this had actually been part of the original World's Fair and we were just uncovering it. And you know when Harry Houdini was there, it was sort of the obvious first thing. So our question was, what if Harry Houdini had created an escape room in 1915 as a challenge to? eight of the most brilliant innovators of the world at the time. We picked eight of the innovators that were there, and that was the nexus of the uh, Houdini room. So then we continued the story with the Teddy Roosevelt room, imagining that Houdini actually hadn't just built it on a whim. He had built it on a mission from Teddy Roosevelt related to World War One, And so the rest of the story was continued with the Roosevelt room. And then we imagined, well, let's say that he had asked each of the eight innovators to create their own rooms to, to further this secret mission. And the obvious next one was Thomas Edison. So then we get to the origin of the Edison room, which I think we would have started in thinking about in 2017. And it took us about a year to build. And the premise was just if Thomas Edison were to have built an escape room, what would he have done? And that was the acorn of that idea. The answer is lots of lights. Yeah. Lots of lights. <laughs> I sort of added up at one point, if you added up every individually controllable light in the room, and so if you have an LED, an RGB LED, that would be three. How many lights are there in the room? And the answer was, do you have any guesses? 30,000. 
Well, that's remarkably close. Yeah, we we got it to about thirty four thousand. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> nice. People are like, I've heard people say a hundred, like hundred. Uh, no, but yeah, it's um, <laughs> so. There's there's a lot of lights, and part of the design is to ease into those lights. Start with few lights, and then more lights, and have them be just just white lights, and then ultimately add color. And so there is a flow to the room, and very intentional to not overwhelm them at first with lights, but sort of, you know, ease into that. It actually starts off very subdued, I would say. Kind of Mm -hmm. steampunk, a little bit steampunk vibe, which I always love this aesthetic in escape rooms. Yeah, the steampunk goes back to the Houdini room. We love the technology. And so how do you do technology that's uh, the Edwardian era, early 1900s, then you kind of have to make a little bit steampunky as opposed to modern. Yeah, so there's always a steampunk element to our stuff. So let's start with this. What's the premise as we are set out on this adventure? Yeah, so the premise that we came up with, which is a little bit, you know, post facto, because the idea, as I said, at first was, well, Anderson was built an escape room. Well, then later it was, well, why? And what's the purpose? So what we came up with was that Edison at that time, 1915, was getting up there in age. I think he would die in the 1920s. He was looking for a successor. It was sort of like, and I want to impart my wisdom and see who's going to be worthy of carrying this forward. Uh, He actually didn't have a great relationship with his own kids, it turns out. He didn't have a great relationship with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, a contentious uh, guy. A lot of a lot of people who do remarkable things also have very uh, checkered elements of their, mm-hmm. their background. But anyway, so that was the idea is that I'm looking for people who can carry my legacy forward. And this is sort of a test to see who's worthy. And, and if you pass the test, you'll get the secret of my success. So that was sort of the, the setup. So we set out into this small relatively small room it's not not tiny but it's not gigantic and you describe the setting that we're in as we we start to explore this and we like that we like having people come in and say oh this is it you know because <laughs> you have to set the expectations so you can do things that build and build and crescendo if you just if you overwhelm them at first then you don't have anywhere to go but down so that's intentional i agree with that approach yeah so the idea is that this is a lounge and it was sort of Edison's lounge in, in that we tell them there's a, there's a secret lab somewhere off of that lounge. I like doing wainscoting, you know, where you've got two layers and then you can get a lot of a great effect with fancy wallpaper. And there's post. Yeah, go ahead. What is wainscoting? Well, so when you have two levels, so you have like something from the ground to three feet up mm. and then you usually have like a trim rail and you have another element from the three feet up to the ceiling okay, okay, right. or sometimes with a, with a picture rail up there. So it gives two, rather than just a, a, a sheer wall. Floor to ceiling, right? It breaks it up. Exactly. Yeah. All three of our rooms, we use Wayden's coating. It just, it was the kind of a classic look at the time. And, and it's something that I just think is aesthetically very pleasing. And it gives you, it enables you to focus on the things on the walls and, and just makes space much more uh, fun and engaging. So the first puzzle is we put little copper etched light bulbs. It's our first experiment in, in cutting and etching copper, and it made them capacitive touch so that each player had to touch a light bulb to get started. We'd like to have something to kind of start the room where the whole group is, is engaged. So everyone has to do 
just a little something just to start. So we're always looking for ways of giving people agency. On the wall, the kind of interesting thing in that lounge, of course, unusual thing is a five by five little cubbies with lights in them, just classic Edison lights. So we're really highlighting his most iconic invention, of course, is the lights. And if I'm remembering correctly, each one of those cubbies had a little label with a different word under it. That's right. That's right. Okay. I'm glad I remember it. It's been a long time. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Who Killed Icky? Who Killed Icky is a treasure hunt from Galbraith Literary Publishers taking place on January 27th, 2024, with prizes totaling $50,000 plus bragging rights. This hunt is designed by John Brommels, a member of the team running this year's MIT Mystery Hunt. And I'll add that John also contributed to the 2021 Recon ARG. You know, David, the only thing I like better than playing a puzzle hunt is knowing that I can win huge amounts of money by winning this puzzle hunt. They have a grand prize. So the first team to finish the treasure hunt can win $25,000. That's right, $25,000 to the first place team. But don't worry, the next 10 fastest teams can win prizes with a total value of $20,000. And there's even other ways to win money. They're running really fun mini puzzles every week. And if you solve a mini puzzle, you're entered into a drawing to win $50. And if you've solved every single puzzle, you're also entered into a drawing to win $5,000. That's right. You can win a ton of money in this treasure hunt. Now, the entry fee is buying a copy of the book, Who Killed Jerusalem, which will be needed to solve the puzzles. However, you don't really need to read the book to solve anything. And in case you're wondering, neither the book, which is set in 1977 San Francisco, nor the hunt are related to global events in any way. Jerusalem is a reference to Icky Jerusalem of William Blake's work. Purchase your copy of Who Killed Jerusalem and register today for the Who Killed Icky treasure hunt with prizes totaling $50,000. The Who Killed Icky treasure hunt begins at 10 a.m. Pacific on January 27th, 2024 and ends at 4.30 p.m. Pacific that same day. You can learn more at ickytreasurehunt.com. That's I-C-K-E-Y treasurehunt.com. Details in the show notes. Our next game is the Forgotten Cathedral from Escaparium, located in Montreal, Canada. The Forgotten Cathedral certainly gave us something to remember, earning itself a top 10 placement in the 2023 Terpica Awards, the same year that it debuted. Jonathan Driscoll, the owner of Escaparium, and Kevin Curry, one of the designers of Forgotten Cathedral, join us to reveal all the details that earned this game its fourth place ranking. In fact, they had so much lore and behind the scenes stories that this spoilers club became a two-part series. You can hear more from Jonathan in his interview with us on season four, episode five. And in this clip, they talked to us about how Forgotten Cathedral was originally part of their haunt attraction and the challenges they faced when converting it into an escape room. 
we also touch upon the intro story for this game and how they took an obstacle and turned it into a very fun aspect of the Forgotten Cathedral. The thing is with the Forgotten Cathedral is for those that don't know, we have a haunt and we decided to make escape rooms out of our haunt kind of thing. That's kind of the order that, yeah, I guess all the games actually came in that order. So the haunt was made first and then we made escape rooms within the haunt. We had some good scenes. I guess Voodoo is the one that was the nicest. We died. We didn't have to change that much, but Cathedral was there after doing Wardrobe. We're like, okay, let's try to tone it down a little. Let's try not to spend too much time on a game. And I think we could save a bit of time and money by uh, opening a next game based on the Cathedral that we had there. The Cathedral was already there and we're like, okay, we're going to get something quickly done. And so we started writing something, but things kind of got a bit more complicated as we proceeded. So just to make sure that people understand, because this is a different model than I think we've seen most anywhere else, where when you turn the Escaparium Laval facility into a haunt, the games are effectively shut down and the people who are visiting the haunt are going through a walkthrough attraction that is basically taking them on a path through the entire building or most most of the games. I'm guessing Bernie Block is not part of the haunt. Maybe 50% of the building, but we have like 35,000 square feet in the in the warehouse area. So, Okay. And then they're encountering different performers in different moments throughout this. But basically, the sets that make up the games become the sets of the haunts with some kind of interstitial content that ties it all together. Yeah, as, as good as we can. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that people understood. And so you have this cathedral set that was baked into this. It sounds like you changed it substantially, but one of the constraints you were dealing with from the get-go was that you built this cathedral set, that that was part of the haunt, and you figured we might as well lean into this, make it better, make it into a game, and then we can continue to have the space working both sides of the business. Yeah, and we thought that we would be able to build faster. So we thought we would be able to save money, save time, and get something out quicker. We all had that work for you. It did not go very well. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if we built it from scratch, it would have went faster, and we would it would have been it would have been more efficient. We would have wasted less time. So building it from scratch would have been better, and that's why this was not a good decision at all. But also, as time went on the game like completely changed from what it was supposed to be at the beginning. It was kind of like the idea at the beginning was to go fairly quick, get something out that's pretty good. But then just kept, we kept having meetings and like, Oh, it would be cool if this happened. And then we had the story come out and we're like every, every month something would be added. So we thought we'd be close to the end, but then we would add new things. So just to give an example of why it took so much longer, originally the cathedral was built out of pretty much, small MDF panels. Is that in, in English? Yeah, MDF, right? Yep. So small MDF panels all over the cathedral pretty much. And then we kind of had textured paint and kind of had stones. That's how we made our stones. So as you know, those that have play, played it, we actually went and built our own stones with cement and stuff like that. So we basically had to rip out all the MDF, put plywood on walls that weren't straight. So we had to straighten out the, the walls first then put the plywood and then make the new stones that look like an actual cathedral. So, And if you aren't familiar with MDF, it's a composite material. It's generally a little bit easy to work with. It's used to build a lot of scenery. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a really good wood for a lot of things, but not to build walls of a cathedral and not to put cement on it to make it. So 
it was not it was not good for that for that game or at least to start yeah we built stuff we removed stuff we built stuff we removed stuff and then we were like okay let's rip it everything out <laughs> <laughs> let's redo from scratch because it made no sense okay, if i remember correctly you had purchased this haunt right and so the cathedral was one of the structures that came with the haunt is that no there's well we did purchase a haunt but in terms of structure and stuff like that we didn't get much so that was us that just built it but i mean we built it when you're building for a haunt and when you're building for a, an escape room it's two totally different things because people are going through the haunt in 30 they're going through the cathedral in 30 seconds whereas players are there for an hour you can't have the same detail in both right you could cheat a lot more <laughs> okay i see you built it for the haunt and then you were tried to repurpose it for the escape room and then ended up having to reinforce it and make a ton of changes. But that's why you ended up with the story of a cathedral in the first place. Cause right. Okay. It was such a unique theme though. Let's start with the setup for this game because your team worked very hard to try and create a sort of diegetic reason for this cathedral being in the middle of the building. It's really hard to tell the guest that's coming Oh, you need to be a mercenary. You're a pirate. You're this, you're that. I really like to try to keep everybody themselves and just, you're just yourself. I mean, the only thing where they got to suspend their disbelief is they're coming there for a guided tour to the cathedral, which I think is really easy for everyone to play along with, no matter what kind of personality you have and how much you want to play along with these type of things. It was important for us to start with that kind of introduction, I guess, from the lobby. But after that, the issue was that the customers had only one way to get to this cathedral. It went through in front of Voodoo, which is fine because the cathedral is supposed to be in the middle of, of Escape Room, which we could uh, talk about after. But then we had to also pass in a corridor, which is in front of the electronics room and in front of the art room, which was a mess and kind of, it's not very nice. And then after that, there was the, uh, the workshop afterwards. Yeah, so how did you solve this problem? We just decorated it. Like, it was uh, not an archaeological site, but... Restoration. Yeah, exactly. Like, we took the artifacts from the church, we brought it back outside, and our workers were restoring those artifacts. So, while you're walking through our workshop, well, it looks like a workshop, because it's, <laughs> it's made to be interpreted as a workshop in the story so you see people with drills and everything yeah well it's people restoring this the church right now the cathedral it made sense to go through a place where it's a little bit dirty there's a little bit of dust everywhere it made it so authentic you know you can justify anything through the narrative right and i loved that you baked it in everything there felt like a real workshop because it it really is the actual workshop for your escape exactly. room and the other thing that i won't spoil anything but there are easter eggs um, nods to the you know cathedral that was just unearthed under an escape room there's like easter eggs there's maybe like posters about it in some of the other escape rooms where it makes sense to see nods to this kind of being there. I had played all of these games and Forgotten Cathedral was the last game I played. So after having played those other games and seeing posters advertising the tour and all these things for this cathedral, it just really brought it home and made it so realistic. Yeah, like outside in that corridor, we actually put up drawings of how the cathedral was before and then how we want it to look after because we are supposed to be in the process of restoring this. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed the backstory you had about why there is a cathedral in the middle of an escape room building and the story that you had for the guides there as well. The guide each have their own characters, so they each go to school or it depends how old they are. They're in archaeology and they've been working part-time here and helping with the cathedral and the restoration, so they know quite a bit about it. This site was protected by the government and Escaparium bought the land that the cathedral was on. What Escaparium did was they found a loophole in the, in the contract that permitted them to build a building around the cathedral because they were just told not to destroy it. So instead, they built a building that Escaparium is in around this cathedral. And then we did agree to restore it in return. But that's what the, the guide is telling the guests as he's bringing them normally backwards and explaining to them about the past of the cathedral. And then that's when he enters that corridor and then there's another GM that's normally there working on stuff to make it look more authentic. In that corridor, they start explaining a few things that you see in, in the cathedral, things that you're going to see, like not really clue, yeah, a bit like clues. And they tell the rules at the same time. So they explain how to use the metal detector in there. They explain that you can't go under the scaffolding, all things like that, that you would normally be told, but it's told in character and within the story, which is which we're really happy with because we, we took something that was, I thought was really negative and we made it into something really positive that most people, I think, really enjoy. It's actually, I think, one of our best intros in, in our games because it's just natural. We're taking a moment to thank our upcoming sponsors for Season 7, Morty, Buzzshot, and Cogs by Clockwork Dog. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms, haunts, and other immersive social outings. And Morty is now available for all to use on its fantastic website experience, iPhone app, and its new Android app. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Buzzshot. Buzzshot is escape room software, powering business growth, player marketing, and improving the customer experience. They offer an assortment of pre- and post-game features, including robust waiver management, review management, and branded team photos. Streamline your marketing and grow your escape room business. Repod listeners get an extended free trial and 20% off your first three months with no setup fees or hidden charges. Visit buzzshot.com slash repod, that's R-E-P-O-D, to learn more. And thank you to sponsor COGS by Clockwork Dog. COGS is an easy-to-use software-hardware platform for running interactive events, including escape rooms and other immersive experiences. They have plug-and-play hardware that seamlessly integrates with their software that makes it easy to create a show with lighting and sound cues. Get the COG starter set for only $130 plus free shipping to the USA. This bundle is usually valued at $257. You can learn more and purchase your starter set at COGS.show. Use code REPOD at checkout. Again, that's R-E-P-O-D. Thank you so much to Morty, Buzzshot, and COGS by Clockwork Dog. Our sponsors are making Season 7 possible. You can find the links and details in the show notes. Supporting our sponsors supports this podcast. 
In this next Spoilers Club preview, we talk to Jesse Morris and Brian Mendenhall, two of the co-owners of Trivium Games located in Emeryville, California. With beautiful props, a whimsical storyline, and fun game interactions, Ghost Patrol is one of the most polished escape rooms that I've played. Part of what makes this game so fun are the well-crafted puzzles, which are smartly clued with very elegant solutions. And it's no surprise because this company is founded by a group of friends who played and ran puzzle hunts. In this clip, Jesse and Brian talked to us about how they pivoted from puzzle hunts to creating an escape room. We also talk about their delightful onboarding process for Ghost Patrol, and we touch on the Museum of Puzzle Hunt Artifacts hidden in their wall of weird stuff in the lobby. Before Trivium was an escape room company, as a team, you also had produced some Ghost Patrol puzzle hunts. Talk to us about how you had come up with the idea of building an actual business around this. These puzzle hunts, they take a year of our time and we charge a registration that almost covers our costs, but we weren't charging for our time at all. And we'd run it once and a couple hundred people would play it and then it's over and that's it. And it was a lot of fun, but maybe we can build something that lasts a little bit longer and more people get to see. And I mean, I didn't, maybe Greg knew this and everyone else knew this, but I didn't really think it through. What that means is that if it's lasting longer and everyone gets to see it, that means we can do like a lot better job on everything because it's worth putting the time into sanding off those rough corners and smoothing everything out, which slows us down, but you got to do it <laughs> if you want stuff to be good. Let's talk about the game. Take us through the onboarding process for Ghost Patrol. With Ghost Patrol and with all the uh, sort of games that we've written, there's always this idea and we lean into it as much as we need to, that you are there to do a job. And we think it's a great structure for a game because it grounds it in reality to at least some degree. Like I was playing an escape room recently. I guess I won't go into detail about it if I'm going to slag it, but I was playing one of these escape rooms recently based on a children's book. And you go into the space and you solve puzzles that happen to be somewhat in the environment, but there was nothing about it other than the theming that made any of the puzzles make any sense to be in the room, right? So what we always try to do is we're giving you a job and then we're tell you what the job is, what you're going to do, and then have you do it. And I know it sounds like it's a simple formula, but it's something that we have to go back to a lot where it's tell them what they're going to do and then have them actually do that thing so it feels like they're doing a job. The onboarding in Ghost Patrol is there's a very vague sort of idea that you are either a temp agency or you have answered a help wanted ad. And we at Ghost Patrol, we have this ghost hunting thing down so easy that we can train you up in five minutes and send any sort of random group of temp hires in there to get the job done. After a short spiel, we set you in front of a cheesy training video that's supposed to seem like too short and not enough information. We go over the basic escape room, our trivium principles of like how we're not supposed to break anything because you can't break your client stuff. We don't leave a mess. And, and so we go through all those. Escape we're not rooms. Ghostbusters. Yeah, we're not Ghostbusters. Exactly. <laughs> I've always wanted to do this. <laughs> yeah. So we go through all of that and it's all in the video. And then we have a brief moment with the GC where we introduce a gadget because we wanted you to have like something to take with you in the job. Originally, there was three of them. Originally, people had assigned roles, all this complicated stuff, but got boiled down to just that one, the spectral stethoscope, which is our uh, audio puzzle clue giver. You can press it up against the uh, slime that's marked in the room, and it'll give you some audio, which is going to end up becoming 
puzzle data. I'm a scary ghost. <laughs> so we train you how to use that, which is a nice interaction as well as information that you need. But then essentially we send you into the room. We give you just a little bit more information because we found people were struggling just a little more than we want to do with the very first activity in there. So we just hit you over the head with it and then you're on your own. So before we move on to the actual game, the wall that the spectral stethoscope and the demo slime are on is sort of this like little museum of different objects. And a few of them are from some of those past puzzle hunts. What are some of kind of the highlights of that little gallery? I guess gadgets have always been a big part of what makes a ghost patrol, or at least a part of it. Sort of the original idea of making a Ghostbusters themed puzzle hunt was after I thought like, well, wait a minute, what if you found the ghost with a PKE meter? So right. we have a little ghost detection, long range ghost detection gizmo in the gadget gallery, the shark which people did in fact use to navigate around the Bay Area for 30 hours until the batteries ran out. <laughs> and there's a magic wand from a Hogwarts-themed puzzle hunt. Yeah, then there's just some other doohickeys. Similar to a Meow Wolf, where we would just have local artists who make weird stuff, and then we could just throw it up on the wall and give it a ghost hunting name and pretend like it's something more than it is, just to have a weird wall of stuff. But that's literally the original stuff that we put up there, and that's as far as it's gotten in, I guess, two full years at this point since it's been up there. So maybe one day. Finally, in this last Spoilers Club preview, we chat with Jason Richard, owner of Steel and Escape in San Diego, California. And we talk about his wonderful escape room, The Missing Season. This escape room charmed us with its whimsical storybook setting, playful interactions, and a narrator that made us feel like we were thrust into a fairy tale. In this clip, Jason tells us the backstory and setup for Missing Season. We discuss his use of Strategos Enterprise, a villain at the heart of a shadow conspiracy that lurks persistently in the backstory of every game at Steel and Escape. We also talk about using the game's description on the website to prime players for the game. So we have this game that you made, The Missing Season, which when you go to book it on your website, a couple of things I want to talk about before we dive into the game. The first is the description that you have. The world has three seasons, spring, fall, and winter. It is time for a change. Strategos Enterprises has a plan. Your mission, travel through the seasons, find the Guardian, and convince them that we need an additional season. We need a time to relax and enjoy life. Just a really unusual, we're not saving the world, we're making the world better in a really unusual way. Interesting setup. Where did this come from conceptually? I've thought about this for a very long time. And it's that typical question when someone says, where do you get your puzzle ideas from? I usually just have to make something up because I don't have a good answer. That's fine. I'm just saying, like, you live in San Diego, my friend. So, like, it's always summer. Yes. <laughs> I would say with the seasons, right? I knew the idea was that I wanted to take a season away. And I had to figure out which season to take away. And it really came down to design. It's easy to make winter and it's easy to make fall. Summer and spring 
are just so close together. So one of them had to go. And I think that San Diego kind of played a part in it where that's what summer is for, relaxing. So what would that world be like without it? And if you could use Wayback Machine, you would see, I think in the original description, it says life, dying, and death. So I tried to not use season's names, but man, that was just so confusing to everyone. So I had to bring the real season's names into it. I get that. The other thing in the description that jumped out at me, and this was something that you've added to all of your games since I had first visited, which is this Strategos Enterprises. What's the story here on that? I think it was at a conference, one of the first ones where one of the speakers talked about the 80s room they had and that it was successful because they had this branding that applied to everything. And I thought, all right, can we get this Strategos Enterprises with the S and the E, which is Steel and Escape? Can we make this as this large kind of sneaky corporation? And that's why in all three games, you have Strategos Enterprises that is behind everything. Got it. Got it. So that's sort of the clandestine private military corporation that we're all employed by. Definitely. I love that because there is definitely a fairy tale feeling to searching for the missing season. And I always love modern fairy tales, you know, fairy tales that are somehow set into the modern world, right? And so I really enjoyed the juxtaposition of being in this weird corporate environment and suddenly you're in fantasy land. And that's totally from this design perspective where if I say something is from the 1990s, it all needs to be relevant. But as soon as I get to use magic and fantasy, I can have things from 2020 or things from the 1800s all in one room. And it makes sense. That's what it's all about for me. Does it make sense for it to be here? And yeah, it's magical. So it makes sense. Buys you some freedom. Lots of freedom. <laughs> Jason, where did the name Steel and Escape come from? It is so unusual. I mean, it comes down to having that notebook and writing down names that I thought were cool, looking on the internet to see if anyone else had that name already. There's no nefarious intent with the things that I do, but I just love the idea of stealing or just breaking into things and understanding things and kind of getting away with it. The whole idea was that in all the rooms we had, you would have to steal something and escape with it. That didn't happen for a while. And I think in one of the rooms, oh, in The Neighbor, it finally worked out so I could justify the name. Nice. So before we dive into the missing season now, I have, there's just... Two more things on the website that jumped out at me. There were two disclaimers that I think are very funny, interesting lead-ins. The first is, this game is more physically demanding than our other games. And the second is, some rooms are hot, some rooms are cold, dress accordingly. Yeah, and things don't start off that way. So with the physical, it was much more physical than I had anticipated for everyone else. 
including the game masters who had to do the reset. There was a lot of things that weighed about 30 pounds that you had to move back and forth. And we wanted people to be prepared. We learned that after about five months. All right, we need to throw this on there because people are they're having quite a challenge with some of the things that we have. It doesn't shock me that you might misjudge what most people are physically capable of. You are you are quite a large individual. Yeah. And I mean, it comes down to physical stuff and even just the puzzles where you anticipate everything's going to be easy, but we can talk about that later. And the cold. <laughs> I really wanted to build a walk-in freezer for that first room and just have it crazy cold. But it's a lot more work than I thought. So we just have more AC than we should in one room, which gets it extra cold. And we had put heat lamps in one room, but that just got it just a bit too hot. So we had to get rid of those. But the, if anything, the description on the website might also get people already thinking, wow, there is going to be a change. Some are going to be hot, some are cold, and it already gets you mentally into that state of the room you're about to get into. I hope you enjoyed this preview of our Spoilers Club. If you've made it this far and you're still here, I'm guessing you liked this episode. While you're still feeling that delicious afterglow, why don't you head on over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a five-star review? These reviews really help with spreading the word about our podcast. Word of mouth is also the best way for people to learn about Repod, so make sure to tell a friend who's into escape rooms or immersive experiences. To see the fullest of escape rooms we've covered in the Spoilers Club series, head over to roomescapeartist.com and look in the drop-down menu under Podcast. For access to Spoilers Club, become a patron today at patreon.com slash roomescapeartist. And for those of you who are already a patron, thank you. Your patronage supports this work of documenting these iconic escape rooms, and it truly means so much to us. Thank you for all of your support. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Teresa Piazza with support by Lisa Spira. This episode was written and edited by me, PG Law. The music is by Ryan Elder, logo by Janine Procht, and all of this is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. It's a key that's been there the entire time. You just didn't notice it because why would you? Which is one of my, we've talked about it a lot, but I don't know, you guys are video gamers, mm -hmm. right? Of some sort. I don't know if you've done Tunic yet. I have not, have you done but Tunic? I have heard good things. Tunic is... Well, it's also Outer Wilds. Yeah. It's the same, yeah. same thing. It's, oh, it's, yeah, which is my favorite game of all time. Tunic, though, th that's kind of all it's about. Basically, every time you finish a section of Tunic, you leave and you find yourself walking along a pathway that brings you back to a place you've already been. And that pathway has always been there. So at any point, you could have basically bypassed almost the entirety of the game, but you just never would have done that, you know? And and yeah, and Outer Wilds, the expansion of Outer Wilds has my favorite one of all time, but I won't spoil that for people. But I love that trick, that trick of something being well hidden enough and, that and it's it, not And my knowledge of, you know, of all the thousands of, of groups that have gone through, only once has anybody ever found that key. Really? To my knowledge, yeah. <laughs>